The RTS London Podcast. Hello, hello and welcome to 2020 Visions, a special RTS event hosted by the DPP. Now, the DPP, as many of you will know, is the media industry's business network. And the fact that we spend all day, every day, talking to experts from across the whole media supply chain does put us in quite a good position to reflect upon the extraordinary and pivotal year that has been 2020. And also to look back over the last decade to ask however the industry got to this place and to look forward to ask where it might take us in the next 10 years. My name is Mark Harrison. I'm the CEO of the DPP. And to join me on this whistle-stop tour of 20 years of media industry uh, history, I have two DPP colleagues, and the first is Helen. Hi, I'm Helen Stevens. I'm Operations Officer for Content Supply and Distribution at ITV, but I also chair the DPP, very privileged to do so, uh, and I've been part of the DPP since its inception. And also uh, joined by Rowan. Hi there, I'm Rowan de Pomeray. I am CTO at the DPP. Uh, I've not quite been involved since the inception, but certainly since the very early days and for a little over two years, I've had the great joy of being on staff at the DPP. So yeah, we'll be hearing more about uh, the involvement of both Helen and Rowan, as well as me, uh, in the course of, of the next 50 minutes or so. But we first of all have to come back to this year. And uh, I think, you know, everyone has had moments in 2020 that they will never forget and certainly for those of us in the UK one of them has to be Monday the 23rd of March when we all sat down to hear this. From this evening I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home because the critical thing we must do to stop the disease spreading between households that is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person. And travelling to and from work but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. Of course, we're all so used to working from home now. Easy to forget how extraordinary that moment felt at the time. And of course, pretty much the whole world was heading home in March of this year. Uh, it was just a disaster for public health. But it was kind of an odd moment for um, the world of media because it ended up being an expression of kind of everywhere that we'd got to over the previous 10 years. And uh, Helen, perhaps you can help us kind of understand why that was by giving us your perspective on, on, on what it was like at ITV in the weeks that followed. Yeah, I think... At first, you know, there was a sense of, oh, my goodness, how are we going to cope with this? I won't say panic, but there was certainly great concern. There was a lot of head clutching and, um, you know, will we be able to cope with it? But the truth is we had been playing around the edges of this for quite some time. And we had, we knew we could do a lot of remote working. Um, we'd been encouraging people to try and work more remotely, to work from home, smart working, you know, flexible working. 
Um, we had a lot of the tools and technology, but what we didn't have uh, was the culture. You know, the readiness to adopt that just wasn't there at that point. Uh, and I think, honestly, it would have taken us another three to five years to actually have the catalyst to make this happen had we not had that instruction from Boris on that day, which suddenly meant there was no choice. We had to make it work. And so, uh, you know, I've lost count of the number of accolades, the amount of praise that was heaped on us as the technology team and the operations team for actually proving that ITV could work in this way and could stand up to the, you know, the pressures and the stresses that on the infrastructure that this would put. And people, the management board, right through the organisation, were incredibly surprised at just how ready it turned out we were. We just didn't know it, you know. And the, the teams Yeah, who, yeah. it turned out in a way that you had all the tools to be working mm -hmm. remotely, just doing it in the office up to that moment. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, because we, you do have moments, and we had had moments previously when, like too much demand on our on our VOD services had taken them down. And, you know, so, so over time we had built up the capacity and our ability to um, to handle large volumes, but um, we would never have chosen to put it to the test as quite a, a kind of in at the deep end way as this. But in the end, it was the best thing we could have done in terms yeah, of tech. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, while lots of broadcasters and content companies were having that kind of experience, you know, almost, I think, shock to find how well they actually managed to to cope. Mm. Um, consumers were also having a pretty amazing time, weren't they, Rowan? Because, you know, they all went home and took to their screens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've been discussing in the DPB for a couple of years now that the, the gradual transition in viewership from, from broadcast to online, but it's really been heightened this year. So in uh, in March 2020 alone, um, you saw this incredible upsurge of viewing uh, on some of the big streaming platforms. So HBO Now signups up 90% in March, Disney Plus up 100%, uh, obviously, of course, uh, aided by some key international national launches for them. Um, and streaming platform Twitch, sort of historically a game streaming platform, but, but now used rather more broadly, up 31%. Um, so this incredible rise in, in online viewing. And what gets really interesting is when you compare that with the broadcast viewing. So um, right across the world, really, we were seeing a massive rise in viewing. And, and you know, I'm sure we can all uh, associate with this, you know, spending more time at home, we were all probably watching more content. Um, and broadcast TV definitely benefited from that. Uh, viewing figures up in every territory that, that we see here in, in this data from July. Um, but make no mistake, uh, streaming increases were bigger than broadcast increases across the board. Uh, other services such as YouTube also up uh, hugely in, in certain territories. Um, so really, really interesting that even as people have been stuck at home, uh, they're still reaching for those streaming services, whether that's on smart TVs, uh, whether that's on mobile. It's not shown here, but I've seen some pretty pretty convincing data that actually mobile viewing was rising as well, uh, despite the fact that people weren't on the move. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, that tells us a lot about viewers changing habits. Yeah, I mean, extraordinary. So as, as has been discussed a great deal, of course, you know, acceleration, as Helen said, around business change, acceleration, as, as Rowan says, around kind of audience behaviours. But it, it, the experience did also confirm that we are a very high risk industry. 
Um, and there was some stuff that was more painful too, wasn't there? I mean, Helen, you know, I, just as, as you're going through some, some great stuff at ITV, there's also lots of pain around your production uh, and also around your advertising revenue. Well, who knew? So here I am telling you how great the technology and the operations held up. But the fact is, um, ITV had spent a long time trying to move away from complete dependency on spot advertising revenue. And had done that relatively successfully through growing our production base. Who could have ever guessed that both things would be hit simultaneously to the point where production ground to a halt completely and advertising revenue fell off a cliff. It was not a pleasant time and, and we had some nasty moments. Um, we did lots of scenario modelling of best case, worst case, you know, let's hope for something in the middle. And um, But we, you know, there was really strong, decisive leadership at that point and, you know, just held our nerve. And, you know, I'm sure people got fed up seeing the same three adverts rotated around um, for the whole of the, the broadcast day. But, but that was how we were at the time. Um, and we just had to have some faith that we'd be able to pull it back. And thankfully, you know, we're, we, are, we have seen that. Uh, production yeah. got back. We, we stopped production. Um, let's say of our soaps, so Coronation Street and Emmerdale, we stopped production of those maybe May time um, and we resumed back at the middle to end of June to the point where we actually managed to not not have it off air entirely. So we'd reduced the number of episodes from six a week to maybe two a week, but we managed to keep, it, keep things going until we could get production resumed. So a lot of hard work and effort and, and I think testament to the commitment of the people that work in the industry that that was, you know, that was what we did. So I guess, you know, all in all, what, what 2020 showed us was that, um, you know, we had evolved as an industry to be uh, far more capable of working remotely than we thought. Um, you know, the, the shift to to online viewing was going even faster than we thought, but also that we never knew where the next um, kind of change in circumstance or sort of market impact would come from. And and that uh, has led to a great focus upon resilience and preparedness for sudden change in the future. And we will come back to that and how that's kind of impacted the way that um, the industry is thinking as it looks forward. But I'm not going to stop us and I'm going to jump us right back and I jump us back 10 years to 2010 uh, and particularly Helen to November 2010 and because that of course was a very historic month not you might be thinking not because that was the month in which um, video streaming had become so strong on Netflix that actually they had launched it as a separate service no 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 something else happened in that month didn't it Oh, was that the first time we met, Mark? I think it was. <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah, this was one of those moments when, um, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the, the top level of ITV and BBC that there should be some collaboration. So uh, I was tasked with go and, go and find your, an opposite number or a colleague at, at the BBC that we could you could have a conversation with and come back with some ideas on how we might be able to work together. Well, um, off we went and uh, I was introduced to Mark and from the minute we met we both realised that we had a very similar attitude to things which is please don't let's sit around you know in endless meetings gazing at our navels and not actually getting anything done let's instead put all these 
politics aside, let's put aside everything that makes a barrier to, to actually achieving something and let's see what we actually could do if we put our minds to it. Um, and let's focus on something and actually make a difference. And, and, and what was the problem, Helen, that, that we felt oh, we had to solve at that time? Well, you know, it was another one of those where the technology was ready, but the the culture wasn't, and it was it was actually making the transition in the media industry from a tape based environment into digital uh, file based environment. And we'd seen it happen in the music industry, and we knew it was inevitable, but it, but but it was just a bit stuck, and there wasn't really much momentum behind it, and there was so much there were so many hurdles and so much to do in order to make it possible. Yeah, yeah, because uh, as you mentioned, I was uh, working in the BBC at the time and uh, and was responsible for um, helping to make the move to uh, BBC North operation in, in Salford, mm. in the city, take place. And, you know, one of our big challenges was um, how could we stop uh, our production staff from going home to work? <laughs> because ironically, given what's happened this year, because they have better tools to work with at home. And it was just sort of a weird place where broadcasters uh, felt like we, we were we were behind we were behind consumers in the kind of digital revolution so that's why uh, you and I decided to um, to to bring in Channel 4 uh, Kevin Burrows the CTO at, at Channel 4 mm-hmm. joined our gang and we started something informally just on top of our day jobs called the digital production partnership um, which was an entirely voluntary thing that quickly became known as the DPP, and we got to work. Um, we got to work in the spring of 2011, and uh, a few months later in September, we published our very first report. Um, and uh, this was it. It was called The Reluctant Revolution, um, and it looked specifically at the difficulties of trying to move to end-to-end digital. And interesting, looking back at that report, it was it's very focused upon upon production, actually, and maybe we'll talk more about this later, but at that time, uh, we could have had this view that really um, moving production on their journey towards accepting fully digital working was was the key thing. It did nonetheless, however, pick out something else. We made some recommendations, and one of them uh, was, was this. Um, we said that uh, The DPP believes that the move to fully digital production will only be accelerated by, and it listed a few things, and amongst them was common standards and requirements for delivery uh, from UK broadcasters. So that was the notion that all UK broadcasters should ask for uh, delivery to come by file in the same way. And that was to prove a really historic conclusion because it was the beginning of a piece of work that was to remove videotape from the UK broadcasting industry. But it wasn't just the determination of this new thing called the DPP to do that uh, that made this feel so important. It was also because of another extraordinary event that impacted globally um, that happened in March of that year in Japan. It's been three weeks since a devastating earthquake and tsunami hit East Japan. At Sony's Sendai Technology Center, they're still cleaning up. Many electronics factories have been disrupted by the disaster, but few were directly hit by the tsunami like this one. 
The factory in Tagajo is 1.5 kilometers, or about one mile, from the sea. The area outside the front gate is a monument to the power of the tsunami. Wood, plastic, and metal lie among tens of destroyed cars against the factory's front fence and completely block the sidewalk. Tagajo is Sony's principal base for professional videotapes, blank Blu-ray discs, and other media products, and the remnants of some of that work can be seen outside. The tsunami didn't just flood the area. It's as if it picked it up, shook it around, and dumped the remains wherever it wanted. The tsunami means potential shortages of some products, especially professional HD cam tapes used by TV stations and filmmakers. HD cam SR, the tape format used to deliver uh, TV programs. And you know, it's amazing how external events can speed change, you know, just as the pandemic will always be remembered for speeding change in 2020. Uh, the tsunami in Japan in 2011 uh, injected a huge sense of urgency um, in uh, broadcasting around the need to move to file-based delivery. Now, Rowan, um, that was uh, nine years ago. I'm thinking that you were probably leaving primary school at that point. Oh, no, maybe you were actually working at uh, BBC R&D. But you know, can you remember the, the impact of that event and how it shifted thinking? Yeah, for sure. I mean, actually, I'd just come out of uh, working at, at UView at the time, um, delivering, you know, a set-top box service that would integrate video on demand, this this shiny, new, exciting idea at the time, um, with broadcast uh, signals. And of course, the simple fact of the matter was that even as we were starting to shift towards digital delivery to the consumer, that process of getting content from the producer to the broadcaster was, as you say, very much based around tape and around uh, HD cam SR. Um, of course, we found ourselves reliant on essentially that, that single factory in Japan. And so losing that supply of HD cam SR tape was a, a real, real challenge. So, um, you know, broadcasters at the time were doing things like only being able to place one copy of a program into their archive because there simply wasn't enough tape stock to, to keep two copies. Um, you know, this was real stuff that was starting to get worryingly close to, to a very serious problem. Um, and, uh, and that really provided the catalyst for this change. Um, and yeah. so that's where, where the DPP's work came in. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, we got to work, didn't we, on, on trying to define a kind of file-based equivalent of this videotape. You know, it really was an extraordinary thing, wasn't it, that, you know, by that time, um, uh, you know, production teams were working digitally, they, you know, they were editing digitally, and then when they'd finished, they would put their beloved program onto a videotape, yeah. they'd get a courier, they'd send it to a broadcaster, the broadcaster would receive it, and they would digitise it again um, in yeah. order to transmit it. Um, and it was this this one sort of uh, there's this one particular process that uh, if we could remove, we would then give us end-to-end -end digital. So we felt we had to define that equivalent of that tape. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you know, I remember running up and down the halls of Television Centre with tapes. Uh, the, this was absolutely the reality. And, and it seems so strange because we'd sort of left VHS behind as a consumer format for quite some time. 
Um, but as as you say, Mark, you know, I think the key um, uh, sort of the key inspiration of of the DPP process was to produce a file-based format that would allow people to reasonably comfortably move from that world of tape. So, you know, Kevin Burrows, as you said, and, and the whole sort of team, uh, including myself and a number of my colleagues from the BBC at the time, um, were, were sort of working on the actual uh, technicalities of, of this, the, the file format, the AS11 DPP file format that people are now very familiar with. Um, but what was so smart about it was to understand that the change process was just as important as the technology. And I think creating a file format that that was sort of comfortable in the sense that it was a single file for a single program, much like you had a single tape for a single program. You know, we took the, the videotape record report, the VTRR, physical form that used to go in the tape box, uh, and the key bits of information from that form uh, were added as embedded in metadata within that uh, delivery file. So it became self-describing. It became you know, very much that digital equivalent of the tape. Um, and I think that, you know, that was a key stepping stone that enabled everybody to, to understand the change and to get on board with it. Yeah, yeah. But it was a huge change, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, the, one of the remarkable things about it was that it now required um, producers to, to sign off their program, um, convert it into this particular file format, and then send it um, uh, over the internet, typically, to a broadcaster. Um, and the idea was that that file could then go all the way through and be sent out to air for people yeah. to see. And that notion that you could finish in the online edit suite and uh, it could go right through then to air and needn't actually necessarily be checked ever again. It was pretty revolutionary, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a huge change. Um, and, and that sort of uh, ephemeral nature of a file, that that um, fact that it can be changed over time, you know, that was, I think, probably the, the hardest thing for people to wrap their heads around. There's something very reassuring about holding a tape in your hand, you know. Um, uh, but but once you've sort of got over that hurdle, as you say, Mark, there's a real um, a real benefit there that you can take that file right the way through the production chain. So, oh, sorry, the the, the delivery and distribution chain even. Um, so, uh, you know, many of the broadcasters actually either right away or, or, or sort of a few months or years later. Uh, upgraded their playout systems to actually play these files out directly with no transcoding, no adjustment to that file at all. Um, and uh, and as you sort of touched upon there, QC, I think, was the real change, quality control of, of those files. Because moving to a file-based world enabled us to deploy automated QC tools. Um, and actually, you know, my, my involvement in the in the the file format itself was was very sort of late on in this in the day, but but that QC process is something that a number of us spent a lot of time on. Um, how that works, how how everybody involved um, can sort of trust the process, um, and who is responsible for what. So as you say, in, in some cases, uh, you know, some broadcasters, that notably the BBC, you know, really said we're gonna we're gonna require producers to review the file. We're gonna apply some automated technical QC, uh, but we're not going to have a, a, a dedicated trained engineer sit and watch every tape end-to-end -end or every file end-to-end -end anymore um, and yeah. that was a, a real shift yeah yeah I mean it was 
a huge change program. Uh, we had to bring together people in production, people in post-production, the suppliers, the broadcasters, and it's a good moment to bring Helen back in because it was kind of pretty incredible, wasn't it, that every single UK broadcaster, so not just ITV, BBC, Channel 4, but also Sky, Channel 5, UK TV, everyone agreed that on the 1st of October 2014, they would move across to taking delivery by DPP uh, file, known as the AS11 DPP. Yeah, uh, nothing short of Yeah, really. Um, I think the role of the DPP in that was crucial because as a, as a kind of neutral vehicle, we could coordinate and um, collaborate with right across the, the broadcast industry to get to a point where we did go for a date because it, it, it becomes apparent that, you know, this could be something that would be spun on and on and on unless you actually had a point in time where you said, from now on, this is how you need to deliver and this is this is the standard that we will accept. And to get all the broadcasters in agreement and to go for that date in a unified manner made the biggest difference to the whole industry because I, I like to think it helped suppliers and our partners as well because they knew what was expected of them, they knew what they had to do and they knew when they had to do it. And I honestly don't believe that, had I don't believe we'd have got there had it not been for the DPP. Uh, facilitating, encouraging, pushing, and motivating people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree with you. Um, so you know, we we did this thing, and everybody cheered, and it was the beginning of the end of videotape, um, at least in the UK. Uh, and then we asked, well, what should we do? Should we? Is that job done? Do we go away, or should we stay around? And asked around the industry, a lot of people said, no, no, no. You need you need to stay. Um, because of the very fact that we had been able to bring together all parts of the media supply chain to collaborate, which had never been seen before. Um, so uh, ITV, Channel 4 and the BBC all agreed to become shareholders in a not-for-profit uh, limited company called the DPP, which was now going to be uh, a commercial entity that would, would fund itself uh, by membership uh, and by sponsorship, um, which was a very, very big moment. But Helen, why did it feel like the right thing to do, you know, from ITV's point of view to enable the creation of this sort of permanent entity? Well, you're right. You know, part of us would go, job done. We've moved from tape to file and we can all just go our own ways again. But what we'd realized through this process was that there was such a huge benefit in collaborating together on things that aren't necessarily commercially sensitive or political, but, but are simply practical. And you know, there was a huge list of things that fall into that category that needed to be done. And uh, we can do them a lot faster together. We can do them in a lot more cohesive manner by, by working through an organization like the DPP. And um, so uh, there was great support for it. And um, I think it, 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 you know, what we'd said was, look, when we reach the end of what needs to be done, you know, when there isn't anything obvious, then we, we will hold our hands up and say, that's it, our, our role is over. But things keep coming and the way that the industry is changing, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, it wasn't entirely 
a positive moment, was it? Because, you know, I remember the the premise was that we create this entity through which people could get together and talk and collaborate. And and not everyone could quite believe that was really what it was, because there was actually a fair bit of hostility too. Well, there was. I think human nature being as it is, there's a bit of suspicion around anything that looks like uh, you know, it, it might be something which is which has a fair amount of influence and, and power in the industry. And and the very fact that our our ethos was all about um simplifying and, and doing things that would help the industry and make it easier to, to make change happen um was looked on as with a bit of cynicism, I think. And particularly other organizations who maybe saw a bit of a threat looming or felt that, you know, we would be stamping on their ground or, or doing things which they would they felt they should be doing uh, I think it, it took a little while for that to be accepted and and that there was a role which wasn't as as threatening as it might be perceived at first yeah 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 and gosh that point you make about uh, trying to simplify things I do remember you know in our early days of of talking to companies about becoming a DPP member talking to to some suppliers and some of them were frank enough to say to me look why ever would we want to join an organization that wants to simplify things yeah. we make money from complexity they actually use that term you know yeah. it's all the problems and difficulty of, of handling media that actually um, enables us to make a living so that's the last thing we want is interoperability yeah. and simplicity and it's interesting because you know we're talking five years ago not 10 years ago that that people mm -hmm. were were saying this so yeah we became this thing called the dpp um it might have been expected that what would then happen would be that we would sort of go off and define lots more uh, specifications for doing lots of different kinds of things and um and have more of those kind of file delivery moments but but actually we haven't since then. Um, so I'm just going to sort of put aside the DPP for a moment. We'll come back to uh, to us later. But I um, just want to invite, you know, first uh, Rowan and then Helen to kind of reflect on on what it was that was sort of preoccupying the media industry between 2015 and 2020, because it, it wasn't particularly common specifications or, or common standards was it what, what, what was on people's minds in those period in that period Rowan yeah I think I think there's been sort of a couple of key trends um the first that I would say underpins absolutely everything is is that we've seen a shift from a media industry where um broadcasters and, and broadcast engineers set the tone of, of what technology was and and what uh, experiences were available um and you know, probably driven by the rise of the smartphone, but a bunch of other a bunch of other factors too. We found ourselves in a world where consumer demand really drives what we do. Um, you know, the days of the shift to HD, where we all came up with HD uh, as an industry, and and then went out and tried to sell it to the consumer and tell them how great it was going to be if they bought HD TVs. Those are long gone. We're now in a world where consumers are demanding that content be available in the formats they want in the places that they want, um, and that's that's a real mind shift um, for, for the industry. 
then you layer into that the fact that uh, the way that we deliver content is changing dramatically. So, um, you know, we're moving from a, a world of hardware, of specialist equipment that is specific to the broadcast industry towards a cloud-based software-driven world uh, where we're building on the same technology as, as a lot of the rest of the world. Um, you know, even video specifics are no longer just the, the preserve of broadcasters. Uh, you know, I was talking about Twitch earlier, streaming is something that is available to, to almost everybody. Um, in, indeed, we're using some pretty broadly available technology to, to run this event. So there's this, this sort of fundamental mind shift in both the using the user's technology and the, the broadcaster's own technology. And I think that we've been kind of going on that journey. Yeah, yeah, that's really interestingly put. Um, Helen, I guess, you know, you have lived that, all the broadcasters have lived that, um, you know, each day, haven't you? This this shift uh, towards um, media that is driven by the consumer. And, and that must have been massively distracting for you in trying to work out where you should be prioritising your activity. Yes, I think, um, you know, the, the, the idea that the consumer wants to access content on any device, anywhere, at any time, had started to take root at that point and and the implications of that were hitting us uh, as we as we start to model out well what does that mean then for our five-year plan what do we need to to be doing and you know I don't think we're unique in having a few experiments and a few failed tries at, at different ways of approaching that um, just trying to get ourselves positioned uh, so that we're not quite leading the market but ready to follow very quickly when we actually understand which way it's properly going um, yeah. and in amongst that then there's the the whole embryonic move which is now you know it's now just standard to targeted and addressable ways of of talking to your consumer and advertising uh, to to specific people that's in specific places um, so actually working out the technology and, and the platforms that you're going to need in order to achieve that takes a long or it took a long time you know the the, the ability to to try things out and to fail fast and and the move away from a kind of standard programmatic and, and waterfall based way of working into something that was much more agile that that really took hold during that during the time. Um, that we're talking about yeah. and uh, not to mention that we had that little flirtation with 3d <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that, that is a really good segue actually um, to, to, to just us highlighting the the degree of kind of innovation distraction that has gone on um, actually not just in the last five the last ten um, there, there's a, a table here that I've been sort of lovingly building up um, over the last few years that it uh, would be good to, to to share with you all. And this shows um, the trends that have been uh, talked about at CES, which is the big consumer technology show that happens in Las Vegas each January. Um, then what has been highlighted at NAB, which is the big broadcast technology show that happens also in Las Vegas in April. The kind of overall industry buzz, um, the, the, the things that have been leading uh, uh, people in, for instance, broadcasters to decide they must start up a new innovation team and get some beanbags and 
some uh, some young people and start doing stuff. And then what it's been that consumers have been focused on. And, you know, you'll see in this table, many things uh, come and go. Um, the industry has, however, generally been fixated on very different things uh, from the consumer because consumers actually have been remarkably consistent. All they've been saying to us for the last 10 years is essentially, we absolutely love video. We just love it. We want it in every possible form. We want to receive it. We want to make it. We want to share it. We want it everywhere. And it's as if there has been so much else going on at the same time that a lot of people in the media industry have found it very, very hard to accept that actually, in a sense, uh, online video was kind of all that really mattered. Um, so when you see that and you hear, you know, you hear Helen and and Rowan speaking, it kind of, I guess it could make us conclude that the industry had become rather kind of fragmented and uh, self-obsessed and, you know, perhaps determined to just that each company should um, find its way on its own. But oddly, um, it hasn't quite been like that. Um, there has still been the sense of a need for industry bodies. And I don't know, Helen, why do you think that has been despite all that? Ooh, I think that on the whole, we're, we're a very kind of networked industry. People like to come together. They like to understand and share. In fact, I found that right through this, this coronavirus situation that being able to talk to other people uh, in equivalent positions that other broadcasters has, has made a huge difference to me. And I, I think that just generally underpins the way that people work in this industry. There's an awful lot of relationship and network um, around. But I also think that there is um, a sense of uh, trying to get from these media organisations things that are relevant to problems that you're facing at any particular time. Um, and that the, the the adaptability of of member organisations like the DPP, and I'd say the DPP is much more adaptable than than most, um, to to be able to tailor the output and the work streams um, to what's needed by the members at any given time is is really appreciated. Yeah, yeah, it's as if Rowan, isn't it, that that when things are moving so fast. Um, actually it starts to become sensible to be in fact more open and collaborative rather than less. Yeah for sure and I think the way that we do that is changing as well uh, so even if you look at AS11 um, the way that we put that together you know you and Helen spoke about the um, the sort of get stuff done kind of attitude that that you you brought together the foundation of the DPP but even then the AS11 process required something quite formalized quite structured uh, to to create that that delivery specification um, and I think increasingly as, as Helen talked about rapid evolution of, of technology and of the business and of you know trying things and failing fast 
quite often we simply don't have the time to sit down and design something perfect uh, implement it and then and then sort of you know run it for for five or ten years very often we're all um, trying new experiments uh, implementing new technology implementing new business models even failing rapidly succeeding rapidly learning from it and and continuing and so you know, the way that people work together, there are times where those formalized recommendations, specifications, standards are still needed. But but very often it's much more about sharing best practice. It's about sharing learnings. Um, and I think, again, in those non-competitive areas, things like how do we structure our technology and how do we deliver content rather than, you know, the competitive areas of, of the content itself. Um, it just makes sense for people to be open and, and to share those things. It's It's genuinely for everybody's benefit. Yeah, and that kind of energy and that that need and that determination to keep talking has meant that, in fact, the DPP has kept going. And in April of this year, while in lockdown, we celebrated our fifth birthday. Um, and this is how we express that celebration to the world. years ago as a uh, organization um, for the UK focused upon broadcasting has evolved in just five years to being an international organization indeed the typical new DPP member company comes from outside the UK and we find ourselves focused on uh, video of all kinds and in all forms and you know that actually precisely um, echoes what, of course, has happened in the industry, the shift towards global video. We talked at the very beginning about how this year has been a kind of expression, really, of exactly where our industry has got to on that journey. But now the time comes to look forwards and to ask where we might be heading next. So, Helen, I'm going to begin with uh, asking you the kind of impossible question of you know when you look forward for the next five years um what do you think is going to be really dominant and different from your point of view uh so i think um personalization of content and editorialization i think is going to be key to all this um if you look at what itv has recently done we've uh just set up a media and entertainment division 
uh, which brings together all the existing broadcast channels and the on-demand worlds into one media and entertainment division. And our focus there is, is over the next five years, say, going to be looking much more at um, the whole consumer addressable concepts, um, how you can, obviously what we need to do is maintain the mass reach business. So, so the bit that's successful, that reaches out, that gets huge mass audiences over our big live events, our entertainment shows and all the rest of it, you want to maintain those as much as you can. But actually, uh, more and more, the, the appetite for content is, there's so much of it and it's so in so many places finding a way of navigating aggregating and personalizing that content for the consumer i think is going to be one of the the key factors in success over the next five years and rowan as that happens as lots of companies take you know a similar kind of journey to to itv in that regard what's that going to mean for technology in our industry and for the companies that supply it yeah, I think uh, the, the, the way that the supplier market comes together is, is really starting to change and the relationships within it are, are really interesting. So um, a couple of factors, just, just to Helen's point about how content gets to consumers and, and how people discover and how we manage personalization. There's, there's some really interesting uh, dynamics ahead of us around uh, aggregation and intermediation, um, you know, how things like voice search, things like uh, aggregated watch lists um, start to become really, really important to the way that consumers navigate media. And I think uh, it becomes very important for content and technology companies to, to work together and to have an open dialogue there. Um, I think in terms of the supply of content, uh, we're going to see sort of a bit of a, a fragmentation, almost a bifurcation of the industry into some really, really big players uh, and a really healthy ecosystem of small players. The place that I'd be worried is, is maybe a little bit more in the middle. So, you know, you've got your big cloud providers, you've got your your hyperscale kind of tech providers that, that are offering more and more services to the media industry. Um and we see some, you know, utterly fascinating startups um, and, uh, you know, spin outs and, and small services from from other companies. Um, there's some stalwarts who are specific to our industry who I'm sure won't be going anywhere. But there are also quite a lot of vendors who, you know, in media industry terms are, are medium to large, but but in business terms overall are very small. Um, and I think some of them will grow and some of them will shrink. I think there'll be little left in the middle personally. Yeah, yeah. We were talking earlier about um, the view, uh, you know, five plus years ago that that perhaps kind of the, the secret to the digital future sat with production and then kind of realizing actually at that time change was more about, in fact, just joining up the end to end digital chain. And then, in fact, what happened more in the consumption realm and the platforms that, that consumers used but it does feel now, I think, as if, you know, one of the the really major drivers for change and the thing that makes, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, Helen's job so complicated and, and her peers, um, but also which is going to uh, prompt the emergence of so many of those small companies that Rowan talked about is the fact that we've got all these kind of parallel content creation um, ecosystems in existence at the same time, all these different kind of paradigms for 
how content is made, who makes it, and where it appears. And to sort of bring that to life and show you what I mean, um, I just want to to remind us of an event that took place um, in April of this year uh, on the gaming platform Fortnite. And it was a moment when the musician Travis Scott um, decided that he would appear live for 15 minutes each day for three days as a hologram to give a short personal concert. Here's just a taste of it. At the gate outside, when they pull up, they give me loose. Yeah, jump out, boys. That's Nike boys hopping our coast. Way too big when we pull up, give me the loot. Was off the Remy, had up at post. Had to hit my old town to duck the news. Two four hour lockdown, we made no moves. Now it's 4 a.m. and I'm back up popping with the crew. I just landed in, Chase B mixes pop like Jamba Joe's. Different color chains, see my jeweler really selling fruits. And they joking, man, know the. You know, now that that moment live on Fortnite brought 12 million viewers uh, on the first day, 28 million unique viewers over the space of the three days. It was watched by hundreds of millions later on YouTube. But what's so interesting also is the kind of the business model around it. People have been trying to calculate how much money. Uh, Travis Scott made from that and nobody knows but but what they do know is for instance they've been able to calculate that he he probably earned um, an extra 300,000 pounds that week just from Spotify streams alone um his social media channels uh, increased in followers by one and a half million people which would have driven more advertising revenue the demand for tickets to see him in person in concert people didn't know then that of course they wouldn't be able to in the months ahead went up by more than 400 percent um and he has his own merchandise um line both in the real world and also another one in the Fortnite world and both of those also exploded with activities so you've got this really really interesting um commercial and creative kind of melting pot and you know that is sort of where we are today. Now, I'm, you know, I'm a very aware that earlier on we talked about innovation, distraction, and the maybe this is like a like um, kind of MySpace, you know, 15 years ago. And if you, some of you might remember the lonely girl moment, um, where we all thought that we needed to start making content like that, and it all kind of fizzled away. But I've got a feeling, uh, Helen and Rowan, that 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 this isn't something that's going to fizzle away. That this is a fundamental shift in the world of media. And it's really hard, isn't it, to, to know precisely how each individual part of, of the media supply chain should respond to it. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, if, if we look at the demographics of our audience and the, you know, the, say the 16 to 24 market, and, you know, they're not watching linear television um, so how do you engage that and, and what do you do as a mass reach broadcaster to change the, the way that you, um, you know, you attract an audience? And I think the only way is to is to partner and to 
look at how you can collaborate and be part of this whole ubiquitous video thing because this isn't going away. But the trick is knowing which bits will actually have some some life, uh, uh, you know, will last because they do seem to come and go very quickly. So I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area. And, um, you know, it's I think it would be people at a better place than me to, to, to work that one out. Yeah, yeah. Ro, what do you think it's, it's going to mean for how everybody tries to find their focus in the next few years? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it is going to be a challenge. The, the the distribution landscape is going to continue to change and evolve on a constant basis. Um, you know, it strikes me that that Travis Scott moment that for many years we've been talking about bringing interactivity or gaming to the television. Um, and what we're starting to see recently is, is bringing perhaps not television, but performance and storytelling certainly into those interactive and gaming environments. It's, it's sort of almost the opposite. Um, yeah. But but that point about video ubiquity is, is absolutely the heart of this. You know, one of the key uh, observations I would make about what we've seen in 2020 is is um, TikTok, the rise of TikTok um, as as this huge platform that people consistently mischaracterize. I would say as a social media platform, and the reason I say that is that TikTok doesn't rely upon a social graph. It, it does not matter if you sign in and haven't made friends with anybody, haven't followed anybody. It will show you video. What TikTok is is a video service, and that service will probably come and go as many others have. Um, you know, other providers will come and go, but I think you know finding the right outlets for your video content is is what matters above all else. And and uh, you know to the point earlier about agility. You have to be able to try new things to distribute to new endpoints uh, because it will change over time though those outlets will come and go and actually that that uh, ties very well to uh, a question that the fact has, has come in while we've been talking because meanwhile you know while we have things like events on Fortnite and uh, uh, and you know the rise of TikTok we've also got the announcement there's gonna be a linear TV channel um, from Netflix in France. Mm -hmm. I mean, Helen, how do you you know how do you, how do you make sense of that? Oh, I, I great respect to the research that's gone on into um, uh, into actually choosing France as the, as the place to launch this because uh, it's it seems that the French audience is much more inclined to uh, to be attracted to a schedule than than they are in other European countries. So I think Netflix are testing the water here. Um, I think for us, we need to look at the doing it the other way around. So we've already got the linear channels. Um, we need to look at building those into our streaming services somehow. Um, and I think that that's going to be the model for the future. I think if you look at Peacock or, or um, offerings like that, you can see uh, how attractive that is to the viewer because there's a great choice. You can get whatever you want when you want it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea that you have to hop between all these different apps to get to the content you want is just not going to fly. No, no, you are so right. You're so right, right? Mm. See, I, I would see that that Netflix linear streaming uh, in in France, as Helen says, you know, it's very specifically tailored to that market where viewer behaviour is is quite different to what it looks like in in the UK and the US. 
I might liken that to the point we made earlier about AS11 feeling like uh, the replace, very direct replacement for a tape, um, you know, a file that feels a bit like a tape. What Netflix are doing is, is creating a schedule of VOD content that feels a lot like a TV channel. And I think that's a transitionary stage to, to you know, ease people towards a world where they can watch whatever they want, when they want. I may be proven wrong, but but certainly that's what it feels like to me. Um, I don't think live is going anywhere. Just for, for clarity, I think event-based live, I think live content will actually continue to grow. Um, but that sort of linear channel um, uh, as, as a sort of a, a concept popping up in an on-demand service, uh, to me, feels like something that that is a transitionary method. Yeah. Now, we're running out of time. We're going to finish soon. There's a couple of questions I'd like to just put to you both. So before we get to those, in a sentence... Tell me, when we've been very uh, kindly asked back by the RTS in 10 years' time, um, and we're asked to look back from 2030, tell me one thing that you think might have happened by that time. Helen? I think that we will see um, consolidation of our PSB broadcasters i'm not so sure that we're going to see and this is just a personal thing you know this is not based on any insight any knowledge or anything other than i feel that um having all the the separate broadcasters that we currently have is not necessarily going to be sustainable by 2030 so i think you might see one consolidated psb platform with content from the existing psbs on it well that is a, a pretty dramatic uh, prediction Rowan, can you equal that? Uh, I don't know whether it's quite so dramatic, but I, I definitely think that we will see some lines start to be drawn under an age-old question of whether content companies are technology companies. I think we will see that the, the companies that succeed are those that invest both in content and in user experience. Um, I, I don't think there is any way around joining those two things together if you want to succeed. Yeah, that's a great point. So just before we close... In that case, we know that what you're saying is definitely going to happen. Um, before we close, uh, we we had a question about um, whether there are still some gaps for industry standards and also one about the risks of moving to the cloud. Um, those those are both pretty big questions that we haven't really got time to address fully. But, but maybe, Rowan, um, you might just say whether you think that there is still... A, a kind of major technical area that um, the industry might need to come together around. Yeah, I, uh, I think data is really what it boils down to. I think whether it's exchanging video content as a file and, and a bit of associated metadata with that, or increasingly, you know, delivering content for multi-territory, multi-platform, um, you know, these much more in-depth and advanced user experiences, they require a lot more data. And, and we... Uh, you know, we still see challenges around the interoperability of meta content metadata and, and other business data between organizations. Yeah, now that's a, a really great one. So so there you have it. By 2030, we're going to have um, completely uniform and standardized metadata to help consumers navigate around a universe with a single app and in which there are consolidated public service providers. There you have it, as neat and tidy as that. Thank you both very much indeed uh, for joining me for this conversation. It's been great fun. Um, and thank you also to all those of you who have uh, tuned in to watch. Bye for now. <laughs>
The RTS London Podcast.